Okay. Uh, one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid um, was Back to the Future. And um, that's because it was on TBS all the time. As some of you know. Okay. I was a Braves fan, and I watched Back to the Future all the time. Thank you, Ted Turner. Um, but there's a scene in, in the movie, there's a scene in the movie uh, towards the end where, uh, you know, it's, 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 that, it's, the, it's the winter formal or it's, 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 it's senior prom and, and Marty's job is he's got to make sure that his mom and dad fall in love and have the first kiss because if not, he just totally alters history as we know it. And he, and he gets up there and he, and he grabs a guitar and he starts playing Johnny Be Good and towards the end of the song, right, he starts just thrashing this heavy metal sort of stuff, right? You remember the scene, and, and by the time he's done, he's kicking over amps and everything, and, and he stops, and he realizes that the crowd's just staring at him. And he says something like, it's not your time, but your kids are going to love it. It's not your time, but your kids are going to love it. And here comes the transition. That's sort of like our text this morning, where we're looking at... Um, the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, uh, verses 21 to 27 or so. And there's this woman that has come to Jesus, and essentially he says to her, it's not your time. It's not your time. Um, so let's, let's look at the text. Let's read it uh, together. I don't mean by that I want you to read with me, uh, but we'll, I'll read and you'll, you'll read along. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28, actually. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out, was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. For she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was, only, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray and come to you now as your servants, as your disciples as those who are hungry to hear from you from your word. Father, we need the bread that is on this table. We feel like the woman who's begging, pleading with Jesus to give us some of this bread that he's come to offer. Lord, give us hearts of humble disposition as we can receive from your word 
that we might walk out of here with newness of life and joy and peace and hope that's so freely offered to us by your son, Jesus Christ. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'll just say at the beginning here, um, <laughs> I, I owe a lot of this, 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 this sermon and some of this content to, to Chris. Uh, he preached this text back in 2009, actually. And I said, hey, send me your notes, which he did, which was maybe not a great idea because there's just some great stuff in there. And if you have a memory from nine years ago, maybe you'll remember some of this. But really, he got it from Tim Keller. <laughs> Three points today. Uh, the scene, the story, the solution. The scene, the story, the solution. Point one, the scene. So we need to set the stage here uh, to, to understand, to truly understand the point of the story. And to do that, we just have to remember last week's sermon. And last week, uh, what we did is we looked at the, at the previous passage in the text here, which is Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. And in that, in that passage, Jesus has this great debate with the Pharisees over the clean laws. And we saw last week that the Pharisees, they were upset because they thought that Jesus' disciples had they disregarded the ceremonial washings. And the issue is that the Pharisees were very strict in dealing with the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament... And especially the clean laws. Especially the clean laws. And this debate ensues with Jesus and the Pharisees. And he applies to them the Isaiah prophecy. Where he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And Jesus goes on to teach them that it's not the external things that defile someone. Like eating and drinking and touching. But that which comes out of someone is what defiles them. And it's the great Christian principle and truth that what truly matters are matters of the heart. What truly matters are matters of the heart. In fact, Jesus explicitly says it. In verse 15, 18, he says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And so just like the Pharisees had elevated the clean laws to extend not just to the temple worship, because that's what they were intended for. The clean laws were intended for temple worship. But what, they, what the Pharisees had done is they'd elevate themselves, saying that you must clean yourself all the time. Clean yourself before you eat. The Pharisee tendency is always, and in fact the human tendency is, is always to elevate aspects of the law in order to justify Ourselves. We justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were saying they've elevated aspects of the law to such a degree where they're saying, if you're not following these principles, then you're unclean. So the law also states that Gentiles couldn't be in the inner courts of the temple, right? And so what do the Pharisees do? They elevate that. They elevate that to such a place where they say, don't come in contact with Gentiles at all. So if they can't come into the inner courts of the temple, then it must be a logical inference and conclusion that you shouldn't come in contact with Gentiles at all. 
So the two things that we're seeing. Last week we saw wash before worship, therefore it's elevated to wash all the time. And this week what we're going to see is no Gentiles in the inner temple courts means don't even come near them at all. So with that in mind, we better understand the context for today's passage. And now with that in mind, when you read verse 21, it's truly astonishing. It's truly astonishing to read verse 21 in light of what Jesus just did and said in 1 through 20. He's addressing people, elevating the traditions of men to be the commandments of God. He says this. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out. He withdraws to Tyre and Sidon. That is through and through Gentile territory. And that is the only time in Jesus' ministry that he explicitly spends time in Gentile territory. This is a region that's to the northwest of, of Galilee and has a long, long history of antagonism with Israel. Okay? Um, both during the Old Testament period and even into the intertestamental period with the Maccabean Revolt and things like that. The problems were always up there. The problems were always coming from this northwest region above Israel. And that's where Jesus retreats to. He goes to the district of Tyre and Sidon. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus, he said that to an Israelite, Tyre was notoriously their most bitter enemy. Josephus said that 1900 years ago, that Tyre was Israel's notoriously most bitter enemy. So then even further, verse 22, he encounters a Canaanite woman. It, well, of course he does. He's in Canaan. <laughs> but Matthew is truly shocking his readers here. In fact, this adjectival use of the word Canaanite occurs only here in the entire New Testament. It's the only time in the entire New Testament that it's uses that the word Canaan is turned into a, an adjective to refer to someone. This is a Canaanite woman. So in Gentile territory, encourage encounters rather a Gentile, but not just any Gentile, a woman. This is quite a stark contrast to the previous story. This is the opposite of who Jesus encountered in the previous story. In the previous story, he's, he's dealing with, a, with, with self-righteous Pharisees. Men who are in the inner religious circle. Men with the right ethnic background. Ones with the right racial profile. Even ones with the right gender preference. And now he encounters an unclean, non-Jewish, pagan woman outside the bounds of Galilee. It's the opposite. It's truly the opposite. The irony is, is thick here. The irony is thick. Just to recap, in the land of Tyre, the most bitter enemy of Israel, she's a woman, not a man, which actually means that she has no real legal status in the first century. No real legal status in the first century. 
And then to take it even a step further, this is what she says. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She has a daughter with an unclean spirit. I mean, if there was ever a situation where the deck was stacked against somebody, this would be it. This would be it. I mean, this is the true outsider. There is nothing here. There is no basis whereby this woman could come to Jesus as his Jewish rabbi. No moral capital, no spiritual capital, no social capital, nothing. Nothing. But she comes anyway. And that's the point of the entire story. That the one who has no social, no moral, no spiritual capital, nothing, no basis whereby she can come to Jesus comes anyway. And that's the point of the entire story. So we got to ask ourselves, what in her, what in her drives her to actually come? Knowing all that we know, and she would have known this, and we'll get to this in a moment, how we know she knows this. She, she knows, she knows who she is. She knows she's on the outside in every way imaginable. So what drives her then to actually come? Her motherly impulse. Her motherly impulse. She's, she's miserable for the sake of her daughter. We don't, know exactly what this child is experiencing. We know that she tells us that, this, that her child or her, um, her daughter is oppressed, severely oppressed, it says, by a demon. We don't know what that looks like. You know, there are places where we see what people that are demon-possessed look like in the Gospels. You think of the man's uh, son in Mark chapter 9 who's, who also has a demon and it says that it, he's, he's oppressed by it and it says that, that it, um, it thrashes him about and even throws him into the fire at times. Convulses him. And we know, actually we should say we don't know. Who knows what kind of agony this mother has gone through by just watching her daughter. And some of you, you know this very, very intimately. You know what it's like to watch a child suffer. And you'd do anything. You would do anything to change the circumstances. I mean, even as I say it, even as I talk about it, you know, the, the, the agony and the sorrow and the tears rise up in me and just thinking about what it would make me go through. And I've never gone through it. And some of you have. Knowing that I would do, and I know you would do, anything to alleviate their pain. You know, you know you would just take their place in a heartbeat. It wouldn't even be a question to you. You take my right arm without a second thought if it would alleviate the pain and suffering in my children. And this woman, this woman has gone through indescribable agony, I'm sure, for the sake of her daughter. And I know you feel this as parents. 
because I've sat beside you in hospitals and waiting rooms. I've seen your agony and tears as we've prayed for God to move and to do something. Pleading with God, anointing with oil, fasting. God, please do something. And that is exactly where this mother is at. Knowing that she has nothing to do with Jesus. No reason in the world why he should ever meet her need. But he comes anyway. She comes anyway. I'll even add this. That the tense of the verb here suggests that she's crying continually. She's crying continually. I see you, Matt and Chris and Andrew checking. It's... She's crying continually. She's persistent in her beckoning of Jesus. It's her motherly love that drives her to do this. This persistent, and I, you know this because you've been there. You know this, this persistent, Lord, please, Lord, help. In fact, um, I just was, I'll add this real fast. Verse 25. Verse 25 is, and I told somebody this the other day, I can't remember who, verse 25 is my most common prayer. I pray verse 25 scores of times a day. Oh, it was Alan. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I don't have words. I don't know how to explain the circumstance. I don't know everything that needs to happen. I don't know what making this right would be. I don't know what this person that I'm about to meet with actually needs. I don't know the cares, the concerns, the weights of this next meeting that I'm about to have. But Lord, help me. Give me something for this person. Lord, you have to do the work here. Lord, help me. And verse 25 tells us that she even kneels down before him. Which is a position of worship, but it's also a position of submission. Because she has nowhere else to go. This is it. Have you been there? Knowing that, you, that you've truly exhausted every possible option. And there really is nowhere else to go. It's not like you can get another doctor's appointment. It's not like you can take out another loan. There's just nowhere else to go. It's at a dead end. It's stopped. It's not moving. That's where she's at. And she kneels before him. And she incessantly asks him and cries to him. So that's the scene. Point one. Point two. Let's see how it goes for her. So how does Jesus answer this desperate Canaanite woman? Let's read 23 to 26 together. He did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yeah. 
It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What did he just say? What did he just call her? Did he just call her a dog? Yeah. Is it offensive? Yes. Is it even pejorative? Yes. But what is surprising and shocking to you and me would very much not likely be surprising to her at all. She would know everything that we said in the whole first point. She would know. She's not, she's not aloof to who she is. She knows she's a Gentile. She knows she's a woman. She knows she's a pagan. She knows that she has no moral, spiritual, social capital. She's not surprised that this Jewish rabbi, this holy man, this, this teacher from God owes her nothing. She's not surprised by that. She is fully aware of her circumstances and condition and position. She's not offended. She knows that a Jewish rabbi is certainly not going to speak to this kind of person in public. She knows that he shouldn't even be in the region. Why is he even here? Why does he, he come up to Tyre and Sidon? What's this Jewish rabbi even doing here? In fact, Jesus doesn't even say anything to her at first. Verse 23, he's quiet. He's silent. He's silent. How many times have we experienced that? We're begging. We know we have no basis. Something's got to change. We're in this position of submission. We know that there is no other option. And it seems like the heavens are silent. Where's the answer, God? God, I'm at the end of my rope here. I do not know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know how to mend this relationship. I don't know how to fix this financial crisis. I don't know what to do about my marriage. I'm asking, I'm asking, I'm asking, and you are silent. And then he finally does speak, and he says, I didn't come for you, I came for the lost sheep of Israel, I came for the children of of Israel, and it wouldn't be right for me to give to you, a dog, the bread instead of them. The bread is for the children of Israel. Why are you even here asking me for it? I don't care how you slice it. He calls the woman a dog. She isn't offended. She knows she's asking a lot. So let me ask you, are you puzzled or are you offended? Are you puzzled or are you offended? That Jesus would speak this way to her. Because you should be puzzled and not offended. If you're offended, you're not looking at the whole point of chapter 15 in Matthew's gospel here. The whole point of chapter 15 is Jesus is breaking down the walls between Jew and Gentile. He does it with the Pharisees and and, and rebuking them for their clean laws. And then he just kind of like looks over his shoulder and walks right into Gentile territory... 
and engages this woman. So the whole point, if you're looking at the purpose of Matthew chapter 15, is to break down this wall of Jew and Gentile. The whole point is to say that you aren't clean or unclean because of external realities. The whole point is that you're not unclean or clean because of external realities, but because of internal ones. The whole point is that, is that, is that the, the requisite cleanliness is a matter of the heart. The whole point is that Gentiles are not on the outside because they're Gentiles. Gentiles are on the outside because of their hearts. That's the point. So what's Jesus doing? He's alluding to something. Because dogs were, in fact, unclean. Dogs were, in fact, unclean. Almost, if you look at all the uses and references to dogs in the, in the, in the scriptures, it's almost always negative. Okay? Even, you know, Paul calls his enemies in, I think, Philippians, dogs. Um, Exodus 22 says, uh, you, shall consecrate to be, you shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by the beasts of the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Because they're the unclean ones. They, they, were, they, were, they were more like a, uh, a scavenging kind of animal. Okay? It's, not like, it's not like the cutesy little puppies. It's not like end petlessness in, you know, in, in Portland or something like that. Okay? It's, it's, it's more of a... <laughs> we care more about dogs in the city than we do about babies. <laughs> Which will be a condemnation on our generation. But dogs are the unclean ones. I mean, we even know that now. Some of you know this. Most of you should know this. Okay? When the dog climbs up on the table, you're supposed to say, get off the table. Not, no, 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 he's a little something for you. <laughs> Put it in your mouth, and then have them take it out of your mouth, and then you go kiss your grandkids afterwards. Yeah. I'm not talking about my in-laws, by the way. <laughs> If there was ever a time that they would say amen to my preaching, it would be right now. <laughs> right now. <laughs> He's alluding to the Father's table. Okay, think of the ancient world. Think of, think of the, think of, even think of your own home, but think of the ancient world. It's the Father. It's the Father that's coming and He's bringing and He's providing for His family. He's setting the table before his children and his family and his wife. And he's providing for them. He's setting bread on the table and he's, and he's, and he's, and he's, and he's doing his, his, his duty as a man. His duty as a man is to care for his household. Hear that, brothers. I've got a lot of <laughs> rabbit trails today. Hear that, brothers. It is your duty to care for your, and provide for your family. It is your job under God to do that. And this father, this image of the father laying it out there, he's saying... He would be an irresponsible father if he let the dogs come up on the table and eat the food. It's not for them. The food's for his children. But she does something here, this woman, at hearing this parable. She does something here that's the first time 
has ever happened in Matthew's gospel. And in Mark's gospel, the same way, up to this point. She does something here that's the first time it's happening. She understands a parable. She understands a parable. Look closely and understand it with her. The first person who understands this a parable is a Canaanite pagan woman. She says, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She looks into the parable and says, Yes, it's the Father's table. Yes, it's his bread. Yes, he spreads it out for his children, the lost sheep of Israel. But Jesus, the dogs do eventually eat. But Jesus, they get the bread that does fall to the ground. In other words, she's saying, the Father's table is such a bounty. It is such a bountiful meal that there is enough to go all the way around. The table is so bountiful with provision and love and mercy and grace. I don't even care if the children get it first. I don't mind getting what's left over because I know that the father has a table of abundance. And she's the first one to ever see it. And Jesus answers her and he says, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. In her answer, she gets her life back. In seeing herself in the parable, not being offended by Jesus saying you're a dog, but by seeing herself in the parable, she accepts the reality of her dogness. That's from Chris's outline. (laughs) So is this. This is a quote from Spurgeon. He says, until a man is truly humbled, he scorns to admit the depravity of his nature. Though he may quite willingly use the terms of humility, he doesn't understand them. For if they were applied to him in another shape, he would grow very angry. He says, call me a horse if you will, but it is quite another thing to put a saddle on my back. The woman before us believed in her heart In the true degradation of her state. So that when the Savior addresses her in an apparently coarse manner as a dog, she was so thoroughly conversant with her own fallen condition that it doesn't startle her to be called what she already knows herself to be. She'd heard sin bark within her so often and so loudly that when the Savior calls her a dog, she only felt that he was calling her things by their right names. If I were to go over the whole statement of the fall and the mischief of sin, everybody in this place would say, that is true. But oh, Spurgeon says, how few there are who really feel it to be true and are deeply grieved over it. We are all sinners, so we say, but we all have our excellencies, so we feel. She is Utterly aware of her own condition. And that is is so baseline crucial for us to know this morning. It is so fundamentally important for us to know this morning 
and every morning and every day that we have no basis to come to Jesus. None. We are spiritually, morally, socially bankrupt. Outsiders know this. This woman who's the true outsider knows it. But as insiders, we're insiders now. We're in the faith. We're Christians. We so easily forget it. We so quickly forget it. And we do it in a a magnitude of ways. We do it when, when our lives don't compute to us. That is, we've put in ABC, one, two, three, and what comes out on the other side is just not what we expected. We did all the right things. We raised our kids right. We're going to raise them right. We homeschooled them, brought them to church every Sunday. Didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. And there's this sense in which there's a bitterness, there's an anger even, there's a fist shaking at God. I didn't get what I deserved. Because we have suddenly become calloused as insiders. Sure, call me a sinner. I'm a sinner. Saved by grace. But apply the actual circumstances of life to it, and it doesn't compute for us. That's the first thing that we must see this morning. We must see that we don't deserve it. You know, I have a... Oh, I have a confession. Um, I really hate admitting it. Because I really am... I really am deeply ashamed of it. And I've talked about it before, but I really... I really did think... You're going to laugh. Because you know me and my family. But I really did think that uh, Vanessa was getting the better end of the deal when we got married. She knows. <laughs> I really did. I really thought she, she deserves me. She's, she's, really, uh, she's really sealing the deal on this one. Signing on the dotted line. Going above her pay grade a little bit. And um, I, I will say, I, I, I absolutely know that that's not the case anymore. Okay. Um, but as a, as, a, as, a, as a way of illustration, if it's helpful to you, as that reality changed, as that reality changed in that, this thing that I've now become deeply ashamed of and and I realized that, in fact, I did not deserve it. I did not deserve her at all, that she is, she's, she's leagues above my pay grade. It caused me to, to cherish it and to love it and embrace it and savor it uh, infinite times more. And the same's true with the nature of, of, of this bread from Jesus. 
That it's, it's not somehow psychologically damaging for me to stand up here and tell you that you're all dogs. Because you are. And you don't deserve any of it. Because you don't. It's actually the height of spiritual health. Because you don't deserve it, but you get it anyway. You don't get it based on your merits. You don't get it based on your goodness, but you get it by appealing to his. And that is the most freeing truth and reality in the universe. That you are saved by grace and you had nothing to do with it. You're a dead, dirty dog. That's the first thing you have to see. The second thing you have to see, though, is that she doesn't hang her head. She doesn't hear him call her a dog, hang her head, and walk away. She accepts it and then pleads and appeals to the Father's good graces. She accepts it and then pleads and appeals to the Father's good graces. And you have to have those two things come together. And when you have those two things come together, you get what's called Christianity. When he says you're unworthy, she says you're right. Then he says come. When he says you're unclean, she says you're right. Then he says now you're clean. You know how this works, right? It's, it's when she says yes, Lord, in verse 27. She doesn't fight. She doesn't disagree. She says yes, Lord. Have we said that? Have we said that this week? Have we said that today? Do you know how this, do you know how this, this parable happens in your life? How this story of Jesus interacting with this woman happens to your life? This, this verbal exchange that he has with her? Do you know how that happens to you? It happens to you through circumstances. It happens to you through the season and the things of your life. Now I'm going to share something with you. Something that shows the inner evils of my own heart. My own struggle that has come to the surface most recently through the things of life is an inner despondency, an inner despair of sorts, sometimes an inexplicable, I don't know why, sorrow. Um, maybe it's, maybe we call it depression, I don't know. But it's, 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 it's surprising to my wife and I for it to be coming out like this. Because when I was younger, I had these great aspirations to be a, a great leader, full of grit, determination, unflappable, full of charisma, and the circumstances of, of life and ministry, they take a toll. They've taken a toll on me. And that's a hard thing to admit because it means I probably internalize things too much. I take things too seriously. I lack an ability to just give things to the Lord and press on. And I see that in other leaders that can really do that. They can really just let the water 
kind of fall off their back. They can take a criticism. They can see the nugget. And they can discard the rest. And it's, it's really impressive. And it makes me mad too. Um, but it just looks like. It looks and it, it, just, it just feels shameful. Unable to shake the circumstances of the day, the week, sometimes months. Um, it worries me. Because it affects my family. It affects uh, my wife and my kids asking, you know, what's wrong? What's wrong? You know that longing that you have um, when you just desire to be something for people and you just can't find the ability in yourself to do it? Like I hear stories. One of my one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite pastors to listen to is Ray Ortland Jr. and his dad was Ray Ortland Sr., who was the pastor of Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena. This 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 this, this great leader and this pastor of this huge church. And he just tells the story of how his father was the happiest man that ever walked on the planet. And he would come home from pastoring this two thousand person church, and he would just be marked by joy. He'd come in with a big smile on his face. He'd pick us up. He'd wrestle with us. And I read that and I go, what the heck is wrong with me? But even the apostle says that it's in weakness that we discover glory, power, and grace. And then this is how God works. That he's upside down to our sensibilities or maybe we should say that we're upside down to his. And that these damaged people in the scriptures seem to be the ones through whom God did great things. Hannah had her bitterness of soul over her infertility. Elijah felt so beaten down by ministry that he asked God to take his life. David repeatedly asked his own soul why it was so downcast. And even Jesus, the divinely perfect human, expressed that his soul was overwhelmed to sorrow, even to the point of death. All the fitness that he requires is for you to feel your need of him. And that is the true conduit of his grace. That is the true conduit of his grace. And that our first calling is not just to be a charismatic leader or father, but our first calling is to know that we're truly loved by an infinitely gracious God and Savior. So what are the furnaces of your life that remind you that you're a dog? The bitterness that you see in your own heart, the unforgiveness that you see in your own heart, anxiety and depression that you experience, Or just that jealousy, greed, lack of contentment that so often plagues us. Because it's often those inner demons that that show us how wicked and evil our hearts really are. Because this is the key. This is the truth. This is the reality of this passage. If we say, I deserve a place at the table, then we'll never have one. But as soon as we admit that we have no place at the table, that's when we get one by grace. You know, this is, I guess this is a Holy Spirit moment because I, I don't have the rest of my notes right now. They're on the printer or the printer ran out of...
paper or or something happened. So what she doesn't do, she doesn't just say, you're right, I'm a dog, and walk away and hang her head. Instead, she appeals to the goodness and grace of the Father because that's the other side of the gospel. You know, some of us in here, some of us in here wallow and sit in sorrow over our circumstances, over our sin, and we somehow think that we're spiritual because of it. We somehow think that we're spiritual because we kind of sit and wallow in our own circumstances and situations, and we know, oh God, I'm such a sinner, I'm such a sinner, oh, I don't deserve any of this, and we walk out like that. That's not what happens to her. She says, you're right, and then pleads and appeals for his grace and mercy. Because the end of the gospel The end of Jesus' work in our life is one of joy, hope, peace, and happiness that he's given to us by grace. So point three, the solution by memory. Point three, the solution. The only way that Jesus is able to do this, the only way that Jesus is able to give this unclean woman a place at the table is by him becoming unclean for her. You know, yesterday at the wedding, I, I preached from John chapter 2, and this is the wedding at Cana. And at the wedding at Cana, um, it says it was the first sign, it was the first miracle that Jesus performed. And it was striking. I noted that Jesus is about to do Many great things. He's about, to, he's about to heal the sick. He's about to raise the dead. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to give hearing to the deaf. But his very first miracle, the very first thing that he does in his ministry is he turns water into wine. He sees a social problem at a wedding. It ran out of wine. And he solves it. And that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the start of his ministry in John's gospel. That's the beginning of his ministry in John's gospel. Because what he's saying is that, yes, I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to be the great teacher. I'm going to be the great healer. And so on and so forth. But first and foremost, I am the Lord of joy. I am the master of the feast. I am the master of the banquet. I have come to bring gladness to my people. I've come to bring joy to my people. I've come to bring hope and and happiness to my people. A people that don't deserve it. A people that don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to them because they're not going to come to me and plead on their own merits, but they're going to plead on my merits and my goodness. And what he does at this wedding is he says, go get the jars of purification. The jars of the purification were the jars we talked about last week. These are the ones whereby you wash yourself and clean yourself to come in to the presence of God. And he takes those jars of purification and he fills those with water and he turns those into wine. Because he's foreseeing something. He's foreseeing that he will be the one that becomes unclean for them. There's not going to be the need for jars of purification anymore when his work is finished on the cross. So those jars of purification, we don't need them anymore. Let's fill them with wine and let's have a party. 
Let's celebrate the goodness and grace and mercy and love of God. My friends, there is a table set for you today. There is a table that is full of mercy and grace and love. There is a table that has so much bread that it's falling off the sides that even us dogs can eat it and be satisfied. So let's eat it by faith this morning. Let's see the goodness, grace, mercy, and love of God, our Lord of joy. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. Help us now to lay hold of it by faith, what you so freely offer us and promise to us in this text. We are unworthy sinners, and you are a merciful, loving, all-powerful, ultimately worthy God. And we ask you to satisfy us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to come to the Lord's table now. And I'm going to celebrate at this table. (laughs) This table that is infinitely full of mercy and grace to you. And come to it this morning with that that, that two-tier mindset. You don't deserve it, but it's going to satisfy you with joy as you walk away from it. The table's open to all those who are Christians, and by that we mean you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you've repented of your sins and you've made that faith public through baptism. And if that describes you and you're joining us from another fellowship, we, we long to, to, to commune with you. So come up row by row from the back, take the elements back to your seats, and we will uh, partake corporately.